Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. And welcome back for one final time in the year 2022. This is our year-end episode. By the time you hear this episode, I will be out of the country almost halfway around the world. I will be in Jerusalem, Israel. We will get to that a little later on the podcast because I do want to talk a little bit about the Middle East while we're on the topic and all that stuff. But a couple of things before then. So really just some topics that have been coming through the transom that I just can't help but comment on. Elon Musk continues to absolutely dominate the headlines. And whether he's dominating the headlines from a good or a bad perspective, of course, depends on your particular political persuasion, on your particular vantage point. The latest hullabaloo is over his suspension of various journalists, including the execrable Aaron Rupar, who have been moaning that he is somehow silencing them or kicking them off Twitter for nefarious reasons or whatever, when if you actually scratch under the hood, what it appears he is doing is he has been temporarily suspending certain accounts that have been revealing real-time locations. You know, the word for this is doxing. (laughs) If I understand the situation correctly here, what Elon Musk has been doing to a select handful of journalists and Oliver Darcy, who you know, is anti-Trump, anti-Musk, and so forth, that he was on CNN, who was talking about journalistic freedom, journalistic integrity, and all that. But doxing is bad. Doxing is really, really bad. I mean, earlier this year, do we recall when Taylor Lorenz, speaking of execrable people, Taylor Lorenz, when she doxed the libs of TikTok content creator? Doxing is bad. I mean, I'm not sure who in their right mind came to think that doxing was a journalistic freedom, a press freedom, a First Amendment issue. Look, I I am the opinion editor of Newsweek. I'm pretty sure I get to call myself a journalist. And I say that because doxing is not an issue of press freedom. It is an issue of human decency. Doxing is wrong. It is here, there, and everywhere wrong. And it also can be quite dangerous. When it has the effect, the intent and or the effect of trying to sick a mob onto a person, especially if that person is a public figure who's already attracting outsized information, there is no room for that in the marketplace of ideas and kind of an open discourse in a setting of that nature there. And the kind of broader point, the broader point here that I think really ought to be made is that yes, Elon Musk genuinely believes in open discourse and he has acquired Twitter and he is revealing the past rot at Twitter, the Twitter files, all of that with the, with the Hunter Biden laptop story and Charlie Kirk and Dan Bongino's Twitter accounts, libs of TikTok, all of these accounts that have been either shadow banned or blacklisted or anything of that nature. Yes, he believes in this. 
But, you know, as, as my friend and a previous guest on this show, Ryan T. Anderson of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, has often said in the past, when you have a right to do something, you have a right always up to a point. Up to a point. I think Ryan and I actually discussed this on this show way back early this year, back in March or April, whatever that episode was. And Ryan there was actually paraphrasing an earlier George Will, the venerable Washington Post columnist, who spoke about this way back probably in the 80s or so before he took a rather more libertarian turn. The idea here is that rights necessarily, necessarily, by sheer dint of the fact that they are rights, have to necessarily be curtailed at a certain, at a certain point and tailored at a certain point for various norms and ultimately to yield to the common good of the whole. So why do I mention all that kind of philosophical argle-bargle in the context here of Elon Musk and free speech? Well, I say that because Elon Musk genuinely does believe in free speech, but everyone necessarily has limits. You know, another friend, Seth Leibson, who's an, a, a Phoenix, Arizona-based radio host, Seth is a wonderful man, was on his show just a week and a half ago or so. We did a bit of a deep dive, and it was actually the week before that, I think, that Seth did an extended monologue talking about Elon Musk's decision to ban Kanye West from Twitter after Kanye tweeted out this horrific, just vile you know, this was after Kanye went down to Austin, Texas, I guess it is, to do the Alex Jones show with his little neo-Nazi buddy, Nick Fuentes. And Kanye decided to tweet out at that time this galling image of a Magan David, Star of David, you know, a thousands of years long symbol for the Jewish people. This Magan David alongside or inside, as the case may have been, inside a swastika. And Elon Musk decided to ban Kanye for that. And, you know, some of the most hardcore of all hardcore free speech absolutists oppose that, oppose that decision. I, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, if I, if I listened or read this correctly, I think even Ben Shapiro of The Daily Wire actually said that Elon Musk was wrong to do that. But Seth Liebson, as he explained on his radio show, explained, I think, compellingly why this was a correct decision. Think about the value of free speech. What is free speech? This is a point that I make over and over again in my various law school talks, actually. I think one view of free speech is that it is necessarily, no matter what you say, no matter what comes out of your mouth, it is intrinsically worth defending as an end unto itself. This is kind of the perhaps apocryphal Voltaire line. I may not agree with what you say, but I will defend to your death the right to say it. This is a line that Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote in the 2010 Citizens United versus FEC case, paraphrasing here a little bit, but he basically said, quote, again, paraphrasing, not verbatim, but he says, it is our law and our tradition that more speech, not less speech, is the rule. And this is kind of this liberal kind of marketplace of ideas paradigm. And this is true to an extent but a much more traditional and I would argue better view of speech and by extension of tweeting, of posting, writing, of any kind of entering into the public foray, a more traditional and I think better view of speech is that ultimately speech is intrinsically good to some extent, but it is more properly viewed largely as an instrumental means to ultimately pursue truth. 
The goal here is truth. If you go back to classical antiquity, if you go back to the Greek Academy, this was the entire point of the Socratic dialogue. This is why in law schools to this day, the way that your first year of law school courses, whether it's torts, property, criminal law contracts, whatever, they, they pedagogically teach in the style of the Socratic method. Because the goal here is to pursue truth. And what that necessarily means is that the speech, in order to be recognized as speech, has to have some value in terms of yielding and pursuing the truth. Now, that leaves a lot of room for speech, but it doesn't leave room for everything. It doesn't necessarily leave, leave room for a Magandavid inside of a swastika. It certainly does not necessarily leave room for doxing. That's the key point here. That's the key point. And for those, of you who, for those of you who are a little more legally or jurisprudentially inclined, I would strongly encourage you to see how this plays out in the context of a legal opinion. And one fantastic example would be the dissenting opinion in an eight-to-one case where Justice Sam Alito is the courageous sole dissenter. This is a free speech case from about a decade ago called Snyder versus Phelps. No need to elaborate on this show at this particular time, but Justice Alito basically says what I just said, and I think that he has the better of his eight colleagues in that particular argument. Very underrated justice, by the way, Sam Alito. He is a hero of the republic. So back to Elon Musk a little bit. The column that I wrote this previous week talked a little bit about Elon Musk, and I decided to emphasize the fact that our big tech woes lest we forget, are actually a lot bigger than Elon Musk. Now, Elon Musk has done a genuine public service. After all the back and forth, was he going to bail? Was he not going to bail? Was there going to be an extended lawsuit? Were they going to settle? Was there going to be a breakup fee for this Twitter acquisition? I mean, you know, that, that went on for months and months, the back and forth, the song and dance. At this point, it really does seem like Elon Musk really has really has acquired Twitter for the correct reasons. He is a public-spirited individual who sees what the 21st century digital town square is. And he is the wealthiest man in the world. And it seems to me, I've never met Elon Musk, I've never talked to him, but if I'm reading this man correctly, it seems to me like he genuinely believes in this. Like he genuinely believes that the social media platform and communicative channels of choice of the political class, of the commentariat cl class, the talking heads and so forth, he believes that you should not be shadow banned, censored, and that it should be all open there. So really, hats off to you, sir. I mean, hats off to Elon Musk. Really. Now, is there more work left to be done? Yeah, there is more work left to be done there. For sure. He's let go of a lot of bad apples. I think there's, you know, the jury's still out to an extent on the apples that are being brought in to rebuild this enterprise. I would like to see kind of a, you know, a further elaboration of precise changes to the terms of service agreement. But, you know, look, there's various things, you know, we, we could keep on continuing to expose more old rot in the form of new Twitter files revelations, yada, yada, yada. I mean, there is more that could be done. 
but he has done really a magnificent bang up job. So hats off to you, sir. But the point that I made in this column, I was just trying to reiterate that lest we focus too much on all the various good that Elon Musk is doing, we, we, we can't forget here that Twitter in the grand scheme of things is actually a relatively small player. I think the number, if I read correctly, of U.S. adults who have a Twitter account is somewhere in the 65 to 70 million range. The number of adults who have a Facebook account is roughly four times that, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe even a little more than that, four to four and a half times that based on the numbers that I've seen. Instagram, 150, 160 million, so probably two and a half times. Now, Twitter punches above its weight, again, because it is the preferred platform of choice for the New York and Washington, D.C. kind of movers and shakers, the lobbyists, the politicians, whatever. I mean, look, to be very candid with you, I spend more time on Twitter than any other social medium as well, for better or for worse. I both love it and I hate it. But in the grand scheme of things, we have to remember that there are way, way, way other and frankly, way, way, way bigger problems here. Focusing just for a second on the Hunter Biden laptop story, which of course Elon Musk has done yeoman's work thus far to expose exactly the horrific decisions. Horrific. Horrific and frankly, profoundly consequential, likely election shifting antics of the Twitter bureaucracy back in October and November of 2020. He has exposed all of that. And that is a public service. And again, my hat goes off to Elon Musk. But let's not forget that it was just as recently as this past August, it was in late August, that Mark Zuckerberg went on Joe Rogan's podcast and just openly admitted that Facebook actually suppressed the dissemination of the Hunter Biden laptop story, the New York Post's New York Post breakthrough bombshell story, and that Zuckerberg suppressed it because the FBI had warned Facebook about the possible risk of nebulous, quote-unquote, Russian disinformation. Elon Musk taking over Twitter, suffice it to say, is not going to solve Facebook's own problems. Even holding aside Facebook... We have much bigger problems as well when it comes to Google and Amazon in particular, Apple. I mean, I mean, there are still major problems with these companies. Google and Apple have a complete duopoly on apps, on the App Store. There is currently pending legislation in the U.S. Congress, I hope that passes, that would effectively clamp down on the Google-Apple duopoly's ability to nuke third-party apps it would allow easier access that is an important bill i hope it gets passed google if you recall in 2016 there was a phd dr epstein who testified before the u.s senate who testified that based on google's own manipulation of its own search algorithm he thought that google and by the way dr epstein the phd who testified who gave this testimony he himself was a hillary clinton voter by the way in 2016 but he testified that based on his own assessments, based on his own studies, Google had shifted potentially upwards of 3 million votes, 
simply based on their manipulation of the search algorithms, which stories were higher up in the searches, which were lower and so forth. Amazon has plenty of its own issues as well. Apple, of course, deep in China, blah, blah, blah. You guys know all this. The, the broader point here is Elon Musk is great. Let's not forget that there is still a lot of work left to be done when it comes to Section 230, antitrust, common carrier regulation, all these various remedies that we have discussed with some of our guests on the show, guests like Mike Davis, Rachel Bovard, and others there. So kudos to you, Elon Musk, but let's not forget that there was a lot of work left to be done. I want to talk about something else now real quick. So last week, former President Trump teased on Truth Social, a social platform that I have not yet joined, to be fully candid, teased on Truth Social about a major announcement that was coming. And he teased it pretty hard. And the chatter for 12 to 24-hour period there was, what could this be? I mean, what could a major announcement be coming so close on the heels of his actual major announcement, which was his, shall we say, subdued speech in Mar-a-Lago last month announcing his 2024 presidential candidacy? I saw some people speculating, oh, he's declaring his possible candidacy for U.S. House Speaker because Kevin McCarthy is currently involved in the fight for his life. Andy Biggs of Arizona is putting up a big fight. And there's nothing in the Constitution, as many others have pointed out, that necessarily limits, from a constitutional perspective, the U.S. House Speaker to actually being a sitting member of Congress. So some people were, some people were speculating that. Maybe Trump was going to announce a running mate. Was he going to announce, like, Carrie Lake of Arizona, now that she is not going to be a governor, at least right now? Well, no. It turns out that it was none of these things. It turns out that he was selling NFTs, non-fungible tokens. I sound like a total boomer, but I barely even know what the hell these things are. He was selling NFTs with his image on it. Do you know what we call this? Well, first of all, it's a gargantuan disappointment and it is cringe as hell but do you know what the word for this is the word is grift this is a quintessential grift trying to get those old school hardcore supporters to make a quick few hundred thousand dollars a naked cash grab And why? To pay his legal bills? To pay his legal bills about all the various lawsuits he's facing? Just to make a quick buck while he's still relevant? I mean, this is amateur hour. Total amateur hour. It really does make you wonder whether he's actually even running for president. I had a good friend, a v 
very, very, very conservative, super right-wing, former Supreme Court clerk, I mean, brilliant guy, right-wing friend who gives a lot to conservative causes. You know, he texted me a week and a half, two weeks ago, and was like, I don't think Trump's actually running. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, Josh, I haven't gotten a single email or a single text message asking for any money since he announced this thing. Whereas if you go back to 2015, 2016, the Trump operation then was well-known, perhaps even infamous, for asking too much money, asking too often, sending out way too many emails. Now, my friends speculate, actually, that perhaps, and this would, this would be the reason to attribute for his exceedingly early, to put it mildly, campaign launch, was potentially to try to dissuade Merrick Garland and DOJ from formally indicting him for the classified document kerfuffle. The idea here being that formally announcing your 2024 candidacy might dissuade him because of the optics. I don't know. I go back and forth on that. But I will say that... This NFT grift, this total, absolute, pathetic, cringy garbage, which I saw no one, no one on Twitter defending outside of a handful of people on the payroll. This is not what a serious presidential campaign looks like. And by the way, don't just take it from me. Some very, very, very currently or formerly hardcore Trump supporters. To be clear, I was also a huge Trump supporter in the 2020 election, a little less so in 2016. But others who have been true, true Trump loyalists for a long time now, many others are really starting, it seems, to turn. You know, Steve Bannon, of all people, Steve on his, on his show this past Thursday, The War Room, the New York Post wrote this up as an article. He said, quote, I can't do this anymore. He said, we're at war. They ought to be fired today. They, here referring to the people who had this putrid idea to have this kind of stunt. Sebastian Gorka, for God's sake. Is there anyone in the entire blue check Twitterati who was more hot, hardcore MAGA Trumpism than Sebastian Gorka? I don't think so. Gorka said, quote, this never should have happened. Whoever wrote that pitch should be fired and should never be involved. We don't have time to waste. Steve Cortez. Steve's a friend. Love Steve. He called for the, quote, firing of everybody involved the Mar-a-Lago who was possibly involved in this decision. Here's Steve, quote, everybody who was involved in this video and also everybody who was involved or at least asleep at the wheel while the dinner with the Nazis happened. That's, of course, referring to the infamous dinner we discussed previously on the show with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. And the key part here, what Steve Cortez also emphasized on Steve Bannon's show last Thursday, 
Steve Cortez said, quote, we can't absolve President Trump of his responsibility for this fiasco. That's the key part. Because you heard a lot of people during the Trump presidency, which again, I was generally a supporter of, of course. You heard a lot of people try to deflect blame from, the, from President Trump at any and all costs. Oh, it was the deep state. Oh, it was this. Oh, it was that. Oh, it was his cabinet secretaries, his undersecretaries, his deputies, his White House counsel, blah, 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 who were undermining him. It was Mitch McConnell. It was Kevin McCarthy. Look, a lot of that is true to an extent, okay? The deep state absolutely did go to war against the Trump presidency. Russiagate was a lie from the get-go. It was a concerted effort from the intelligence community, from the national security apparatus to try to derail the presidency. He faced two BS impeachments, the first being unspeakably BS. I mean, a six-page phone call with Vladimir Zelensky. Are you kidding me? Are you freaking kidding me? So a lot of that is true. But... The buck still stops with the guy who runs the operation. So to give a concrete example from the Trump presidency, you know, he passed the first step back, this horrific jailbreak law that we discussed just last week with our guest Ryan Gerdusky. Terrible legislation, terrible. And a lot of folks were like, oh, this was Jared Kushner's pet project. Oh, it was Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. No, I'm sorry. A, a bill does not get signed into law without the signature of the President of the United States. Period, full stop, end of story. That is Schoolhouse Rock 101. Go up and look at your old school cartoon videos if you need to watch it. So the same thing applies here in a non-presidential, in a campaign, or as the case may be, a quasi-campaign context. Whichever boneheaded boomer moron had the idea to tease a major announcement only to have these self-aggrandizing $99 non-fungible tokens. Sure, Trump should fire them. Sure, Trump should fire whichever idiots were involved in letting him dine with Hitler-loving neo-Nazi scum like Kanye West, Miley Yiannopoulos, and Nick Fuentes. But the buck stops with Donald Trump. And I am not the only one seeing this, guys. Just last week, there were two polls, two major national polls I saw, one from USA Today, one from the Wall Street Journal. In a hypothetical Republican primary in 2024 right now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, should he choose to run, in all signs do seem to indicate that he will make a run for it. That's obviously not confirmed, but that's what it looks like. Those polls show him with a double-digit lead, over 20 points, actually, in some of these polls. People are leaving the station. They are leaving the Trump train. That ship right now is going down. That doesn't mean he can't recover. It's possible. A lot of things are possible. But this is cringe. This is garbage. 
and it frankly does not even have the various hallmarks and accoutrements of anything remotely resembling a legitimate presidential campaign. One final thought, and then I'll transition. There is going to be an upcoming FEC, Federal Election Commission, reporting deadline. Right, this is the catch. When you formally announce your candidacy for federal elected office, you have to make disclosures when it comes to campaign raising. Well, if my friend who texted me is right, that they're not actually hitting the emails or the phone calls to raise funds, and if they're relying on grifts, like $99 NFTs, that's going to be a pretty embarrassing FEC report. So I genuinely think the jury is out as to whether Trump is running in earnest. And if I were debating whether I want to remain on the Trump 2024 train or not, I personally am not debating, as I've said many times publicly, and I will reiterate once again, my preferred candidate is Ron DeSantis, should he choose to announce. But if I were still debating whether to stay on the Trump train or leave the station, I think you have found yet another reason to abandon ship. Really just cringe as hell. I don't know any other way to put it. Scamming some boomer grandmas who live on Facebook who probably don't, don't even know what the hell an NFT is. What are you doing, man? Like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, to be continued. So as I said earlier on the show, by the time you listen to this, I will be over in Israel. This is a two and a half week vacation for me. I'm going to be actually all over the Middle East, spending 10 days in Israel. My uh, parents are here. My girlfriend and her parents are here. My girlfriend is actually Israeli, so most of her family happens to live over there. So we're going to have a great time kind of going all throughout the country. Then we're going to fly, just my girlfriend and I are going to fly to the UAE, spend three nights in Dubai, including New Year's Eve, which we're particularly excited about. Uh, we're actually going to also see Abu Dhabi while we're, in the UAE, while we're in the UAE, and then we're going to spend three nights in Egypt, never been to Egypt, so really looking forward to seeing the pyramids. And then we will fly back to Florida in early January. I want to focus a little bit on that first, well, that second flight, I should say. I want to focus a little bit on that flight I'm taking from Tel Aviv to Dubai. So if you pay attention to Middle East geopolitics, this is the quintessential Abraham Accords flight. This is the flight, Tel Aviv to Dubai, that the Israeli and Emirati diplomats were celebrating back in August of 2020 when the news first broke of the Trump-brokered peace accords between Israel and the UAE. The UAE was the very, was the very first country to get, get into the Abraham Accords. Bahrain, if I recall, came next, and Morocco and Sudan came a little after that. So this is kind of the this really is the quintessential flight, and I'm actually really excited for that because I'm a I'm a political junkie. I love geopolitics. It's it's, it's just very cool. I mean, we're flying El Al, which is Israel's national airline, from Tel Aviv to Dubai, which of course is a Sunni Arab Sunni Muslim country. And you know, I I you just have to think. I mean, I have to think like my my grandfather, 
who passed away um, five years ago now. He passed away in 2017. I mean, you know, I can only, like, imagine what his reaction would have been if he had been alive to see, you know, his grandson flying on is Israel's national airline from Israel to a to an Arab country like the UAE, which, of course, shares a border with Saudi Arabia. Really just really wild. So I'm actually really looking forward to that. The Abraham Accords actually are in the news again because Benjamin Netanyahu, who is the incoming, yet again, prime minister of Israel, he's already Israel's longest serving prime minister ever, ever. he looks set to regain power once his coalition negotiations, which appear to be going a little more slowly than I think he had hoped, but if slash when he gets that coalition house in order, he will take over yet again as prime minister of Israel. He gave an interview recently to Al Arabiya, which is a major Saudi publication, and he was talking with this Saudi journalist about how amazing and transformative formal peace would be between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is kind of the big kahuna. Saudi Arabia is the most important player from the Arab world for any number of reasons. It is a sprawling country. It is a big country. It is a strategically important country as far as its physical geographic position there vis-a-vis the Iranian regime, which is the enemy of not just Israel, but all the Sunni Arab states there in the region, with the exception of Qatar and maybe a couple of smaller others. And most important from a Muslim perspective, Saudi Arabia, of course, hosts the holy cities in, in Islam, Mecca and Medina, Medina. So, Israel-Saudi peace would actually be genuinely earth-shattering. And for what it's worth, my friends from the Trump administration who I have spoken with on this issue have told me that Israeli-Saudi peace was coming, probably in the first six months is what I was told, of a hypothetical second Trump term. And why were the Saudis so close to making peace with Israel, and why do they seem so far away now? Well, I'll tell you exactly why. The reason that the Abraham Accords happened during the Trump presidency is because the Trump administration warmed up to the Arab allies and was fierce as hell on the country the Arab allies hate the most, which is Iran. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, all these countries are utterly terrified of Iran. Iran is the de facto North Korea of the Middle East. They are the crazy, crazy dictatorship. They don't have nukes yet like North Korea, but they've obviously been trying for a very long time. They're currently in the middle of a months-long, deeply repressive crackdown at home, publicly executing all sorts of protesters of the regime. It's bad stuff, bad stuff. Now, the Saudis did give their implicit sign-off on the UAE and Bahrain joining the Abraham Accords. Again, the Saudis are the most important uh, the, the most important Sunni Muslim player in the region. So the Emiratis, who are close allies with the Saudis, never would have agreed to the Abraham Accords had the Saudis not said, oh, you guys go ahead. You know, Abu Dhabi, you be the test run before Riyadh formally joins. But we're much further now from the Saudis formally joining we're much further now from the Saudis formally joining 
for the very simple reason that the Biden administration has completely 100%, 180 degrees reversed course on the Iranian issue. And that's bad. That's bad because the Trump maximum pressure campaign, as the administration called it, was actually working quite well in Iran. Now, of course, they're much closer to getting a nuclear weapon. They have increased clout in the region. It's very bad. So I just say all that, and again, it's timely because I'm over here now in the Middle East. I'm about to fly to the UAE. If the Biden administration actually cares about diplomatic initiatives in this region of the world, and not just virtue signaling for their intersectional woke crowd, their woke audience, the tin pot dictators at that utter moral cesspool, at that utter moral cesspool known as the United Nations. If they actually care, they would be doing a lot more to expand rather than hinder the Abraham Accords peace, which was a once-generation peace that in a just world, President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu and all the other leaders involved would have won Nobel Peace Prizes for. It was actually even a controversy in the first year of the Biden administration. I remember, I think it was Ned Price, this idiot spokesperson at the State Department, I remember them debating whether that whether they were even going to refer to it as the Abraham Accords. I guess it had too much of a ring of, of Trump to it. Imagine that. Imagine being so, so, so in your partisan foxhole, so disgustingly opposed to one particular political figure in in particular that you are actually going to not use the name affixed to a peace deal and perhaps even don't even support the peace itself, if I can extrapolate just a little bit there. Really just wild stuff. But again, I hope the Biden administration reverses course on the Iranians and the Saudis. I hear a lot of people who say, oh, they're all bad, you know, Iran, Saudi, what's the difference? You know, there are a lot of conflicts in the Middle East, for sure, where there are bad players against bad players. I think back to the Syrian civil war. At the beginning of the Syrian civil war back in 2013, when Barack Obama was president, he was gearing up for a strike. At that time, I thought the proper position was to oppose that move because there was simply no U.S. dog in the fight. Here you have Bashar al-Assad, who is a nutjob dictator, going to war against largely Al-Qaeda insurgents and Al-Qaeda-backed insurgents. You know, the U.S. dog in that fight is not exactly clear, to put it mildly. I think there was actually a lot of truth to what Sarah Palin said at the time when she, let, when she said, let Allah sort it out. A lot of truth to that sentiment. I think back to the Iran-Iraq war, which is before I was even born. No clear U.S. dog in that fight. But sometimes there is a dog in the fight. And the Saudi regime has plenty of flaws. Plenty of flaws, okay? I'm not going to apologize on behalf of this Sharia, hardline Islamic country, for God's sake. But they are heading in the right direction. The crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, has been making all sorts of necessary reforms. They are not exporting Wahhabist 
radical Islamist crap all around the world like the Saudi regime of 20, 25 years was doing. It is a different country. And most importantly, the only damn thing that I care about from a U.S. national interest perspective is that Saudi Arabia hates the same crazy genocidal country that I hate and that America hates, which is Iran. That is the only damn thing, frankly, that matters. So for that reason alone, a sober, hard-headed view of the Middle East should, should, in a sane world, lead the Biden administration to try to warm up again to the Saudis that they have so alienated and to try to expand the Iran try to expand the Abraham Accords to them. God willing, they will do so. So on that note, guys, like I said, I am abroad at the time you, you were listening to this program. So this is our last episode of the year 2022. I'm having a blast. I hope you guys are too. If you have not already done so, please go ahead and formally hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever. And leave us a comment. Leave us a actual comment. We do read them. Let us know what we're doing right. Let us know what we're doing wrong. Because we're going to have a few weeks off here. But as we head into the new year, we want to take your feedback seriously. Very much want to take your feedback. We're still a young show. We're a growing show. We have lots of ambitious plans for this new year, we hope. But we couldn't do it without you, the listener. So really, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you for being along with us for this ride. Like I said, I am having more fun doing this than I thought I would when we got started. And we'll just see where we go from here. So thank you yet again for subscribing or listening. And please do subscribe and leave your comment there. And I will see you guys in 2023. And until then, I'm wishing you a very Merry Christmas. For my fellow Jews, wishing you a happy Hanukkah and wishing you a happy, happy new year as well. I will see you guys in 2023. Have a good one.